Greetings, this is Jeff Riddle. I'm the pastor of Christ Reformed Baptist Church in Louisa, Virginia. In this episode of Word Magazine, we're going to be discussing an article that is representative of discussion, I think, that is beginning to take place among uh, many Christians around the world, and especially Christians in evangelical and reform circles, as to what is the proper text of Scripture and what are the proper translations that Christians should use. Should they use translations based on the modern critical text, or should they use translations based on the so-called traditional text, uh, the Reformation text, the Masoretic text of the Hebrew Old Testament, and the received text of the Greek New Testament. And uh, earlier uh, in this podcast series, I had noted that I was going to try to do some articles, and so I'm trying to pursue that. Um, there's a lot obviously, that comes out every day. We live in that age where there's so much information. We get the information overload. Um, so I'm going to backtrack a little bit, and I want to talk about uh, several articles that appeared in an online publication and print, uh, I think it's in print also, called The Ordained Servant. And this is the um, sort of uh, periodical, monthly periodical, that is primarily aimed at the those who serve as officers in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. And there is a new issue of this that comes out at the beginning of each month. But I want to backtrack because in the December of 2023 issue, they had a kind of a point counterpoint where two persons were talking about um what text of the scripture is to be preferred. And they had one ruling elder who made a case for the majority text and another who made a case for the modern critical text. And those two articles had come out of yet a previous article that had appeared, I think, in September of 2023 that had been written by a scholar pastor named T. David Gordon. And the title of his article had simply been Textual Criticism. And so uh, I want to see maybe if we can go back and I want to look at uh, the September article, September 2023 article by T. David Gordon. And perhaps this could be uh, the first of a three-part series that we might look at the other two articles from uh, December of 2023. But let me go ahead and pull up uh, the Ordained Servant online edition on my screen. Now, this is the December 2023, and this is where this, this sort of showed up on, on my radar screen. I have a number of friends who are part of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church and really appreciate a lot of things about the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. Uh, those of us who are confessional Reformed Baptists are indebted to them in many ways, uh, the, the, the hymn book that we typically use in our churches is the Trinity hymnal uh, that was used by or developed by the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. Um, and we have a sort of a Baptist edition of that, which has our confession, the Second London Confession in the back of it. But anyways, um, so this was December 2023, and it starts off with an article here from the editor and the editor is Gregory Gregory Edward Reynolds. 
And um, you can see that part of the contents were these two articles. One was by Bruce A. Stahl, The Case for the Majority Greek New Testament Text. The other was by T. David Gordon, The Case for the Eclectic Greek New Testament Text. And in the, uh, the, the, the editorial that serves as a preface uh, for this edition of The Ordained Servant, um, he introduces the whole uh, uh, idea of textual criticism. And again, it seems that this is popping up as an issue of discussion in OPC circles. And so he started off, as I mentioned in the August-September editor's introduction, and here's a quote from there. When I left seminary, Westminster Theological Seminary in 1979, I was a fan of what is known as the majority Greek text. And earlier in 1611, the Texas Receptus, or the Received Text, which underlies the King James Version and the New King James Version. After several years of sermon preparation, using the third edition, 1975, of the Greek New Testament of the UBS, United Bible Society, uh, UBS 3, I realized that the UBS edition gave me access to a much wider variety of Greek manuscripts than either the Texas Receptus of Erasmus or the majority text. Concern with accuracy of the Greek text is the concern of what is called lower criticism, whereas higher criticism calls into question the divine authority of the text. Um, so let me just pause here for a second, and um, we're going to go back to that September edition. But there he had said, you know, when I was in seminary, I liked the majority text and even the, the Texas Receptus. But then I started using the UBS uh, Greek New Testament, third edition. It's now in the fifth edition in 2024. Soon will be a sixth edition, probably by 2025. But he says, I found this was better. And so he said, basically saying, I moved from supporting the so-called majority text to supporting the, the modern critical text. Um, now, we're going to see there, there are a couple of points of confusion with all due respect to the editor um, he presents it as though there are only two choices. There's majority text, uh, and he, he sort of puts the Texas Receptus as a subset of that, and then there's the modern critical text. But but actually, uh, the, te the TR is not identical with the majority text. Um, and so really, there we could say there are three options. There's a majority text, there's the received text uh, with respect to the New Testament, and there is the modern critical text. Um, and so in this uh, dialogue, he's going to present between a majority text advocate and a modern uh, reasoned eclectic text advocate. Uh, there's a third position that's missing, and it probably represents, I think, uh, many people in the OPC. And in, in fact, I would guess they would have probably very few people who actually hold to the majority text. But if there are people who read the New King James Version or the King James Version, uh, they don't hold to the majority text. They hold to the TR, the Texas Receptus. Anyways, let's let's continue. He's introducing these two articles. He says, a well-respected elder in the OPC, Bruce Stahl, sent a thoughtful article defending the majority text in response to T. David Gordon's article, Textual Criticism. That's what we're going to eventually review, if you'll hang with me, in the August-September issue. I asked Gordon to respond to Stahl's piece. Gordon is a retired New Testament scholar who taught lower criticism throughout his career. 
Stahl was grateful and made some revisions, and he is happy for me to publish his article, The Case for the Majority Greek New Testament Text, with Gordon's response, The Case for the Eclectic Greek New Testament Text, in this month's Servant Exchange. Let me just make a couple more remarks here. He says that that T. David, um, or um, sorry, T. David Gordon, yes, is an advocate of the modern critical text, and he is an expert in lower criticism as opposed to higher criticism. And this is a terminology that used to be used in the 20th century, the 19th century. It sort of said we can work with the text of scripture, but there's nothing really theologically that's at stake. It's part of the the mantra, you know, uh, no cardinal doctrines of Christianity are affected by textual criticism. But I would say that this supposed division, this imaginary division between lower criticism and higher criticism is in fact a facade. It's not true. When you deal with the text, you are going to deal with theological issues. When you deal with the text, you're going to deal with higher criticism issues. Um, and so this is kind of an old style uh, way of talking about textual criticism. And one of my general um, critiques of this whole discussion is it doesn't take into consideration what has transpired in the 21st century. And this is true with, no, with all due respect to the editor. Uh, he went to seminary, Westminster Seminary in 1979. Um, so that was, uh, that was what, that was 44 years ago. And he probably read Bruce Metzger's uh, uh, a book on New Testament textual criticism, um, but that material in that book is now very outdated. And many people who are pastors who went to seminary in the 70s, 80s, 90s, uh, even up to, to 2000, uh, they are often um, thinking about the text in the New Testament in a way that it really isn't thought about, I think, in the 21st century. Um, but let's let's continue. He says, uh, it has also come to my attention that some churches use the New King James Version based on what I believe is the mistaken idea that is based on a more accurate Greek text. And so maybe after that article we're going to look at by T. David Gordon, there were some people who said, you know, uh, we use the New King James Version. We don't use the ESV. And um, this, is a, a, this is a persistent problem for people who want to embrace the modern critical text is they find that a lot of the people in the pew still prefer uh, translations that are based on the traditional text. And uh, I'm not defending the New King James Version per se, but it at least in the New Testament is based on the received text so that it has Acts 8.37, the confession of the Ethiopian eunuch in the text and not in brackets or relegated to the footnotes. It has, uh, the New King James does the uh, the coma ioanneum for Shun uh, 5, 7, and 8, the, the three heavenly witnesses. Um, and so they find that that that, uh, that although they tell people, hey, the ESV is better, it's based on a better text, that uh, people still like the, the traditional translations based on the traditional text. So anyways, he says uh, there are still people who do this, even though it's not the best text, it's not the most accurate text. Of course, that's an unproven um, uh, supposition he's making there. Uh, and, and I would certainly challenge that uh, th that the received text is an inferior text of modern critical text. But anyways, 
He says, after years of using the New King James Version of my preaching and in the pew from the mid-80s to 2006, when the Committee on Christian Education and our Sunday School publisher, Great Commission Publications, decided to use the newly published English Standard Version, ESV, for all their publications. And apparently they did that in 2006. Uh, our church changed to the ESV. Let me pause here for a moment. Again, I'm an outsider to the OPC. I have some friends who are in OPC circles. but um, And I wasn't aware of this, but I guess in 2006, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church adopted the English Standard Version as the translation that it would use in all of its publications. Now, the English Standard Version came out, I think, in 2001. Um, that's pretty amazing that they took a translation to be the standard translation used in all their publications after it had only been in existence for five years. Um, and in fact, uh, that uh, ESV that came out in 2001 and 2002, uh, they actually ended up revising it a couple of times. Uh, and, and so my, my question is, again, I'm not, I'm not criticizing the OPC, but it is interesting that, that they chose to, to, to make one translation a standard translation for their denomination after it had only been in existence for five years. And I'm sure that they did not mandate what the churches would use. But uh, the editor here is saying is because this was the ESV uh, translation that his church switched from the New King James to the ESV. And he personally switched from preaching uh, from the New King James Version to preaching from the ESV. And, um, you know, I was around in those days when the ESV first came out. I've noted before, I remember, you know, there was such a a promotional effort for this translation. Um, it was it was pushed. It was being promoted in Christian circles. There were videos that were put out with high-profile evangelicals of that era, the John Pipers and so forth, saying, yes, this is the translation I choose, the Wayne Grudems. And uh, I remember, I've mentioned this before, being at an Evangelical Theological Society meeting when I used to be part of that, that society, and uh, when the, the study Bible came out and they I, I said they were they were handing it out like candy. Um, they, they lowered the price. Um, I don't know. They had subsidized it and you could get this huge study Bible for maybe 10 bucks. And so people were just snapping it up. Um, and, and so they were they were they were you know, really heavily promoting it. And I'm sure they were doing that with the ESV translation itself. I think they wanted to have an evangelical received text. They just didn't want it to be the authorized version or the New King James Version. They wanted it to be the ESV. And so um, he says, yeah, because of that, they embraced the ESV. And then he says, it would seem wise to use the translation that our denomination and Sunday school publisher use, especially when it comes to memory work. I believe that the ESV is based on a sound Greek text and trans and uh, and translated by actually it is based on a sound Greek text and translated by faithful uh, Greek scholars. So um, that's interesting, and I, I wonder if he knows the actual uh, history of 
the English Standard Version. Where 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 are its roots? The roots of the English Standard Version uh, come from 1881, and that was when there was an attempt to bring out the English Revised Version, uh, based especially in the New Testament on the critical text of Westcott and Hort. And then there was an American version of this, which was called the American Standard Version. And then in 1952, the infamous Revised Standard Version, uh, which became a, um, a prominent translation used in mainline Protestant churches like uh, PCUSA type churches, Meth United Methodist churches, uh, the Episcopal Church, the, the Lutheran uh, uh, evangelical uh, Lutheran church. Um, and so this, this became their Bible. And there was a lot of controversy about it because um, it had places like in Isaiah 7, 14, rather than saying a virgin shall conceive, it said a young woman shall conceive. And many took this as undermining uh, the doctrine of the virginal conception of our Lord. Um, of course, the RSV was revised a couple of times, um, in the in the initial uh, 1952 version of the RSV, they took uh, the traditional ending of Mark, Mark 16, 9 through 20, completely out of the text, put it in the footnotes. Uh, but when they revised it in 1971, they put it back in the text proper and put brackets around it. And then in 1989, there was the, um, the new revised standard version. Uh, and that's still, well, it was broadly used for a season. And then uh, just in the last uh, couple of years, they came out with a new Revised Standard Version updated edition. Now, the ESV is basically an evangelical version of the RSV. And so when it came out, um, the people who were behind it, people like Wayne Grudem, um, John Piper, other people who were supporting this, um, they uh, wanted a translation that was like the RSV, but that had corrected things like in Isaiah 7, 14, rather than it saying a young woman shall conceive, um, they wanted to say a virgin shall conceive. They recognized that that was potentially undermining the doctrine of the virginal conception or the virgin birth of Christ. And so um, they went to the World Council churches, which had the copyright uh, for the RSV, and they had some undisclosed uh, arrangement made whereby they could they could basically use uh, the RSV translation and tweak it and make it a bit more evangelical. And so that is the those are the roots of the ESV, the English Standard Version. And again, Crossway had published it or published it. They were behind it, and they very, very, very heavily promoted it. It was major bandwagon promotion, and it was almost presented as if you're an evangelical, this is the Bible you must use. Um, but of course, the ESV has not become the evangelical standard version. Um, maybe they, that's what they wanted to be. I said the English standard version, the evangelical standard version. Uh, of course, uh, there have been critics of it, um, in particular, people who have said there are places in it where they don't like uh, the, the theology proper that is expressed in it, and some have referred to it as the eternal subordinationist version. Um, but anyways, it still is widely used in many evangelical 
and Reformed churches and denominations and apparently in the OPC. Um, but anyways, let's go back to our major point. I'm, I'm drifting a bit. Um, the point is, December 2023, ordained servant, um, the editor says, we're going to have two articles here. We're going we're gonna to present two articles. We're going to have one by a ruling elder, Bruce Stahl, giving the case for the majority Greek text. We're going to have a scholar uh, and an elder, uh, T. David Gordon, give the case for the eclectic text. But he says, um, we're going to do this because there was some there was some questions raised about the article that had appeared earlier. So what I want to do today and what might be the first of three uh, in this series is I want to go back to the original uh, uh, August, September 2023 um, ordained servant. And oh, let's see, I want to look at, if I can, uh, the the article that was written by T. David Gordon. Here we would find it. And yep, here we are. There it is. The article is textual criticism. And uh, we see him introdu introducing the article here, T. David Gordon's review article. Well, no, that's that's another one that he wrote. Uh, da, da, da. Here we go. This is this is what he quoted earlier. Uh, when I left seminary, et cetera, he says, since then there seems to be renewed interest in textual criticism and the best text for faithful sermon preparation. I have asked T. David Gordon, retired professor of religion and Greek at Grove City College to reflect on this subject. I want to pause here for a moment. And what he's saying is uh, apparently in some OPC circles, there's been conversation about the text of scripture. And maybe it's because of the conversation that's been going on among those of us who are advocates for a return to the traditional text. Maybe it's come from other circles. Maybe it's come from people who've expressed alarm about the new coherent space geological method that's being used uh, in new editions of the Greek uh, handbook. And so it was, a, it was enough on the radar screen uh, uh, for the editor of the ordained servant to think it needed to be addressed. And how is he going to address it? He's going to ask someone to affirm the modern critical text. Um, he didn't say, well, there's some questions about this. I'm going to ask somebody to present the, the Reformation text position. And then I'm going to ask somebody to give the majority text position. And I'm going to give, ask somebody to present the modern critical text position. No, um, he says, I'm going to get somebody to, to, to present the modern critical text position. Um, so, uh, at any rate, let's go ahead now and look at this article. This is finally, we're finally getting at what I want to do in this episode. And that is, I just want to walk through this article. And it's actually a fairly long article. And I got to tell you, I don't, you can probably tell, I don't have any notes for this episode. I'm just going on the fly. This is a long article and it's got a lot of footnotes or a good number of footnotes. And I'm going to try to walk through this article. I have skimmed over it once, but I did not read it hyper closely. And so I, I'm going to be probably reading it closely now for the first time along with you. Um, I did notice um, that he makes some references to Robert Louis Dabney, and I did pull off my off my shelf uh, 
a a copy of Dabney's discussions uh, in which there is a an article uh, that is cited uh, within this article by Gordon on um, what's called uh, the 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 doctrinal various readings of the Greek New Testament, famous article by Dabney. He cites it, and I I pulled that the volume off my shelf because I I want to look at another citation from it. But um, let's go ahead, and I'm just going to read through. This is going to be kind of boring, maybe for some. I'm just going to read through the article and I'm just going to offer some commentary as we work through it. Okay, so this is the article by T. David Gordon. And by the way, uh, I looked up T. David Gordon real quickly on Wikipedia. I've never met him in person. I did have an email exchange with him one time on a matter that we were both involved with. And um, uh, he is actually a native Virginian. He's, he's from Richmond, Virginia. Uh, he did his doctoral degree at Union Presbyterian Seminary, uh, and I also did my PhD at Union Seminary. He was there before me, I think. And uh, then he taught at Gordon-Conwell Seminary, and as the editor pointed out, he taught New Testament and Greek at Grove City College. Um, what I remember T. David Gordon for is a little book that he published in 2009, really good book. Uh, titled Why Johnny Can't Preach. And it was a critique of a decline, declension in preaching uh, among younger preachers. And I, I think that's still a really good homiletics book uh, to read. So at any rate, let's let's go ahead and launch into this article. So he starts off, cultures, perhaps like individuals, seek uh, equilibrium. When the cultural left pushes further left, the cultural right tends to push further right. In my own lifetime, it may, I may have observed this several times. Mid-century uh, communists probably birthed the John Birch Society. The hippies may have insti instigated the National Review. Roe v. Wade likely incubated theonomy and the moral majority. And the woke left yin today appears to be provoking its Christian yang of biblicism and revived theonomy. Those who deny uh, certainty provoke hyper-certainty, whether for this reason or simply because nature abhors a vacuum. It appears to me that there is more discussion of biblical text criticism today than there has been in a half century or more. So I pause here for a moment, and he starts off with kind of a maybe a, a cultural argument that because the culture is swinging more left, there's a tendency of some Christians to swing more to the right. And he's saying that because of the leftward drift in our society, there are people who are choosing maybe hyper-conservative views. And he talks about biblicism and theonomy. And uh, he, he, he basically is going to, I think, um, he's going to push back against those of us who are uh, supporting, promoting the Reformation text, the traditional text. And he's going to say that, I think, in a, again, in a, in, a, in a subtle way, it's not, not explicitly said, that uh, we're in danger of seeking hyper-certainty, hyper-certainty in our views. Let me just look down at his footnote number one real quick. 
Uh, he says, Scott Clark, our Scott Clark of uh, Westminster Seminary West in Escondido, California, discusses what he calls the QIRC, which stands for the Quest for Illegitimate Religious Certainty. And I remember that in his case for the Reformed Confessions, talking about those who have a quest for illegitimate religious certainty. Uh, readers can search his title blog to see his discussion of the general intellectual quest uh, for such certainty. In my lectures, I frequently argued that the original Edenic temptation was an example of this. Then you will be like God, knowing as God does, rather than as a dependent, mutable, and fallible creature does. Well, it would certainly be wrong to think that we could have the knowledge of God. But uh, I, I think there's a problem with R. Scott Clark's view. Yes, it, there, there can be a quest for illegitimate religious certainty, but if there is no quest for legitimate religious certainty, then we are just liberals and humanists. So the liberals and humanists would say that Christians of all sorts are ones who have a quest for illegitimate religious certainty. I think there are some things that we should have religious certainty about, and I don't think it's sinful or wrong for us to want to have certainty about certain things, including most foundationally, what is the basis of our knowledge of the truth? What is our basis of the knowledge of God, the knowledge of ourselves? And for us Protestants, that is the scripture. Uh, that is the, the Holy Scriptures. And so I don't think there's anything wrong with wanting to have maximal certainty about the text of scripture. Um, you know, there, there are those group of guys online uh, who are the, 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 the textual confidence collective. And a friend of mine has said that he's part of the maximal certainty collective. And uh, so anyways, but he's, you can see he starts off here basically saying, uh, again, positively, there are people talking about textual criticism these days. And that's not because of the confessional bibliology movement or the Reformation text movement. Uh, I think a lot of it really started with Bart Ehrman. It started back in the 1980s, 1990s, on into the 2000s when uh, Ehrman was presenting new ideas. And then there's been a shift uh, that, uh, from the on the goal of textual criticism where scholars no longer talk about trying to reconstruct the autograph. And now they're simply attempting to establish the initial text. And so there's been a, a sort of a shakeup. And yes, it has caused a reaction uh, among many conservative evangelical and reformed Christians who have said that this new approach to textual criticism is problematic. It's problematic because it leaves the church without a sure foundation. It undermines the epistemology uh, for Christianity. Uh, let's continue. As an individual with three graduate degrees in biblical studies, I welcome any intellectual effort directed towards Holy Scripture, especially since the late Peter L. Berger ruined my sleep by persuading me that for most people, religion is not an in intelligent concern. My Greek students for decades were fairly tolerant of Greek, and many of them liked it, but even my one-hour lecture on text, text criticism in second-year Greek appears to have moved them to alternate thoughts of suicide or murder, and I know uh, for whom the latter was directed. For me, therefore, to encounter any interest in textual questions of the Bible is an oft-sought oasis. 
Uh, so um, he starts off, of course, he's being humorous here. Don't, don't fault him for that. Um, but, he, but he starts off, uh, you know what he's doing here, as an individual with three graduate degrees in biblical studies. This is establishing his bona fides. I'm an expert. I know something about this. I have degrees in this. I've taught this. And But then he makes an interesting claim. Let's go to that footnote also. Does it jump down to the footnote? Yeah, it does. Good. Should have done that before. Um, uh, hold on. Let's see if we can find it again. Let's go to his second footnote. Peter Berger, A Rumor of Angels, Modern Society, and the recover, Recovery of the Supernatural. Again, uh, he's in, it's interesting because he's starting off with so much sociology in this discussion. Uh, you know, the, the, the quest for certainty is because of the uh, 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 on the right is because of movements on the left. And here's something similar. And it's this idea from Peter Berger that people have their religious views, not because of their intellectual convictions, but because of maybe cultural or sociological reasons. And I don't, I don't know what the background for this is, but it, it begins. It sounds a bit like, you know, you're a Christian because you were born in a Christian culture. And people who live in Pakistan are, are Muslims because they were born in a Muslim culture. Um, but wouldn't we say, as particularly as Protestant Christians, that your faith, your belief is a matter of your convictional framework? Uh, and it is a matter of uh, your intellectual and spiritual commitments. It's not just a matter of the sociology of your life. But anyways, he's saying it's positive. I'm happy that people are interested in textual criticism, even if he thinks some of us are misguided. Uh, he continues, still, I wonder what is provoking a renewed interest in the once boring field of text criticism? Thomas Kuhn thought that intellectual revival, especially in the empirical disciplines, was ordinarily provoked either by new tools electron microscopes, MRI et al., or new paradigms. And this is Kuhn's famous, the paradigm shift. People think one thing and then all of a sudden they shift and think another way. He says, I have not witnessed any new paradigms in biblical, biblical text criticism and few new tools have demonstrated significant promise. At any rate, the editor of Ordained Servant is not the only one who believes there appears to be a renewed interest in the matter. So I will provide a few thoughts that may assist church officers who wish to address this issue. So again, the positive is this is showing up on people's radar screens. Now I want to go back to this statement here. With all due respect to T. David Gordon, who has three degrees in Biblical studies, and he teaches New Testament and Greek. Um, taught it for many years, is now retired apparently from it. He says, I have not witnessed any new paradigms in biblical textual criticism. And that's where I would just, if I could um, respectfully say, I, I don't think you understand what is happening in modern textual criticism. No one observing the field of textual criticism today can say, I don't observe any paradigm shifts. There is a major paradigm shift that has taken place. And I would recommend that you would read, anyone who would, who would question it would read um, Abidan Paul Shah's uh, dissertation 
uh, where he addresses the, the changing goalposts in modern textual criticism. No longer is it the goal of academic textual criticism to recover the autograph. Now they talk about the Ausgangs text, the initial text. Now the purpose of textual criticism is not to restore the text. They think that's un you're incapable of doing that. It can't be done. What textual criticism is about is the history of the reception tradition. And that is a huge paradigm shift that's taken place. So with all due respect to T. David Gordon, um, I think he is off base in this. But let's continue. Um, he says, by introduction, I would remind church officers of the need for humility regarding the matter. Few of us, even seminary graduates, are trained in text criticism beyond the introductory level. He's absolutely right about that. A lot of times people think pastors know all about this. It's very rare that a pastor would take even one textual criticism class. He's probably taken a semester or two of Greek, perhaps. Um, but his probably even his reading, his ability to read the Greek New Testament is not high. It might be higher in some denominations, maybe like in the OPC, that they may have a higher level because they do think they do value a trained and educated ministry. Um, but um Let's take Southern Baptists, my for, for, former denomination. I wonder what the percentage of Southern Baptist pastors would be who actually look at the Greek text uh, Sunday by Sunday if they're preaching from the New Testament or the Hebrew text if they're preaching from the Old Testament. Uh, he says, further, even the late Bruce M. Metzger, who was perhaps the leading American expert in text criticism, he was in the 20th century, expressed caution about the very discipline to which he devoted much of his professional life. The range and complexity of textual data are so great that no neatly arranged or mechanically contrived set of rules can be applied with mathematical precision. Each and every variant reading needs to be considered in itself and not judged merely according to a rule of thumb, since textual criticism is an art as well as a science. Uh, it is inevitable that in some cases, different scholars will come to different evaluations of the significance of the evidence. And that's the end of the quote from Bruce Metzger. What does that come from? It comes from his textual commentary, the Greek New Testament, uh, 1971 edition. So uh, let's go back and think about this uh, for a moment, um, if we can. So he's saying we ought to approach with this with humility. Even experts like Bruce Metzger has said, that textual criticism is an art and not a science. And um, that's really, I, I, I agree with him. And I think we need to understand that, um, that basically textual criticism, as it's been used in the modern period for the last 150 years, the result has been uh, there is no scholarly consensus and uh, there are a lot of artists out there who create different arts and they don't agree on what the text of the New Testament is. In my opinion, this means that modern textual criticism has been a dead end and needs to be abandoned. But he's just making the point that um, there's no one out there doing modern textual criticism who can speak with authority as to what the text is. That ought to concern us. Anyways, he says exactly one century before Metzger, Robert Louis Dabney, at the conclusion of a 43-page discussion of doctrinal variant readings in the Greek New Testament, also urged humility regarding the matter. Uh, and this is the Dabney article I made reference to, we'll come back to later. 
He says, if all the debated readings were surrendered by us, no fact or doctrine of Christianity would thereby be invalidated. And least of all, would the doctrine of Christ's proper divinity be deprived of adequate scriptural support? Hence, the interests of orthodoxy are entirely secure from and above the reach of all movements of modern criticism of the text, whether made in a correct or incorrect method. And all such discussions in future are to the church of subordinate importance. Yet they have their interests and should receive the intelligent watch of the teachers of the church. Absolute historical certainty of the results is not to be expected, since so many of the documents of the primitive church are gone forever, but probably conclusions are all which are to be expected. And uh, he notes that this is um, <laughs> this is from Robert Louis Dabby's article, The Doctrinal Various Readings of the Greek New Testament, that was in the Southern Presbyterian Review of April 1871. Uh, he says, uh, for a systematic theologian, Dabney demonstrated a remarkable grasp of text criticism as it had been practiced to his day. His article reviewed, among others, the text critical work of Richard Bentley, Johann Albrecht Bengel, Johann uh, Jakob Wettstein, Johann David Michaelis, Johann uh, Jakob Griesbach, Johann Leonhard, Johannes Martin Augustinus Schultz, or yeah, Schultz. Karl Lachmann, Konstantin von Tischendorf, Samuel Prideaux, and Henry Alford. Unfortunately for Dabney and for us, another decade passed before Brooke Foss Westcott and Fenton John Anthony Hort published their influential two-volume New Testament in the original Greek in 1881. So Dabney's writing a decade before uh, Westcott and Hort. And let me just, I'm going to pause here for just a moment because I want to address this quotation from Dabney. And some of you may not even be familiar with who uh, Robert Louis Dabney was. Robert Louis Dabney was a Presbyterian uh, theologian. Um, during the war between the states or the Civil War, uh, he was a passionate advocate for, for the Southern cause. Um, uh, he was on the staff of uh, Stonewall Jackson and at the end of the Civil War, uh, he became pretty embittered against uh, uh, the United States in many ways. Um, and so uh, because of some of his views, a lot of times Robert Louis Dabney's views have sort of been canceled. He's not talked about as much as he was at, at, at in earlier times uh, in uh, this nation, probably among Presbyterians. And one of, one of the things that I, a really valuable thing I have in my library is I have the whole collection of, uh, sorry, I had it upside down, of Dabney's so-called discussions. And these were printed by Sprinkle Publications. And uh, unfortunately, when, um, uh, when we had the end of Sprinkle Publications, uh, this uh, uh, wonderful series is no longer in print. And so these are kind of hard to get. But uh, Lloyd Sprinkle, uh, who printed these, was a was a friend of mine and a, and a, a uh, confessional Reformed Baptist pastor in Harrisonburg, Virginia, for over 50 years. And so, um, and it is interesting that Robert Louis Dabney, by the way, Robert Louis Dabney was born in Louisa, Virginia. He was born in the county where my church exists. And then he pastored a church over uh, in 
just west of Waynesboro, Virginia, at a, a, a church called Tinkling Springs Presbyterian Church. And then uh, he had also taught at Union Presbyterian Seminary, uh, where I completed my doctoral degree and also where T. David Gordon uh, completed his degree. But um, it is interesting to look at Dabney's views on textual criticism. I've long had in the back of my mind the idea of the possibility of doing an article at some point on this. And uh, this article, long article, The Doctrine of Various Readings of the New Testament Greek, what I would suggest is that, is that Dabney, the, he lived from 1820 to 1898. Uh, he was living in the 19th century. And uh, he was an amazing scholar, and he, he was reading widely in all these, basically, the, the beginnings of 19th century textual criticism. He was reading Lachman. He was reading Griesbach. He, he was reading um, Tregalus. And, and, and so he's reading these guys, and um, Dabney wasn't perfect by any means. I don't think anybody will argue with that. And he was being influenced by them. Um, Spurgeon was influenced by uh, modern textual criticism in the 19th century. And he's trying to come to terms with uh, what these guys were saying in their analysis of the variants. And they're challenging, I think, of the classic traditional Protestant views. And so um, I would say the quote that he shared, for example, I think that's a moment where he wavered. I don't agree with what he said there. Um, but if you read through the doctrinal various readings of the new, of the um, of the New Testament Greek, and I think Gordon will come back to some other quotes from uh, Robert Louis Dabney, you'll see that that Dabney, although he was trying to trying to countenance and come to terms with uh, all these things that were being written in the 19th century, challenging the traditional text. And although he was saying, I think he was sort of maybe doing what Warfield did, retreating a bit and saying, well, there are all these variants, but in the end, it doesn't affect doctrine. So it's sort of the root of this evangelical idea of textual criticism doesn't undermine our doctrine. Um, but if you read carefully his book, he's still a passionate advocate for the traditional text. And even though um, he's trying to countenance and come to terms with these things, he's not saying, let's get rid of the traditional text. And I just want to read another quote uh, from Dabney's discussions. This is from page 356. And here he's challenging uh, those like uh, uh, Tischendorf and Alford uh, for their abandonment of the received text. So he says, uh, this method, this page 356, substantially adopted by Tischendorf and by Alford, no longer retains the received text as a common basis for emendation or standard of comparison, or even as a mere cord upon which to string the proposed corrections, but proceeds to construct a text just as though it, the received text, never existed. It is this objectionable and mischievous feature of the later criticism, which, as we believe, especially demands the notice of biblical scholars at this time. Its natural result will be that the church of God will finally have no New Testament at all. 
it should be remembered that the received text is that which is now actually in the hands of the laity. In the popular versions of King James, of Luther, the Douay, the Genevan, the Odates, and those of the other European languages. Does anyone suppose that the labors of any learned critic will persuade any of these nations to surrender its version for a new one? So let's put Dabney in context. Uh, Dabney is not saying, let's abandon the traditional text. And in fact, I think he's very prophetic here. He's trying to countenance all this, the, the, the new textual criticism. He doesn't withstand it as strongly as I, I wish that he would have. But he does say, listen, if we abandon the traditional text, we're eventually going to reach a point where we have no New Testament at all. And what he said, what he wrote in 1871 um, has come to fruition in 2024 in many circles because for those who have wholeheartedly embraced the modern critical text, it leaves Christians, I think, with no no New Testament at all because it's, it, it, uh, it's uh, completely pliable. Uh, the, the New Testament is a wax nose that can be twisted anyway by any scholar, sometimes even by any reader. Uh, so with that, um, I think we're going to come back to Dabney, but let me let me pull back our article again and uh, let's see. We'll just go back to the top. See if we can find ourselves again in the article. Mm -hmm. All right, maybe I won't go to as many footnotes anymore. Let's just let's just see if we can jump into this thing. Okay, as the English Puritans frequently observed. There should be a direct correlation between light and, and heat. Um, where we have little of the first, we should have little of the second. This adage, am I looking at the right thing? Yeah, I looked at, uh, we looked at the Dabney quotation. Let's go back. Um, blah, blah, blah. The adage probably, probably confounds the American populace who ordinarily holds the strongest opinions in areas of the least competence. For example, consider how heated some individuals become about a favored translation. Individuals who often have studied neither Hebrew nor Greek. I taught Greek for 41 years. On a few days, listen to me, I'm an expert. Uh, and there is no translation that I have any passion for, though there are many that I appreciate. Um, and what he's saying is, the people who get passionate about the Bible and the text and translation, they're often, you know, populists. They're often the people who have the least information and so forth. That may be true in some cases, but, you know, not everybody who gets passionate about this issue does so out of ignorance. Uh, sometimes people are passionate about it uh, with an informed background about it. And also, sometimes when you start talking about tinkering with, with people's Bibles, even the person who doesn't know Hebrew and Greek who sits in the pew sort of intuitively knows or expects that God will preserve his word. And so I don't think we should dismiss uh, concern about the Bible in this day as being some kind of anti-intellectual retreat uh, for some people. Um, he says, in the following, I would like to address several matters. The scale of the question, the, the families of manuscripts, and some counsel to church officers. So he's going to have three points from here on out. 
We'll start with the first point, the scale of the question. Uh, he says, the vast majority of variant readings in the original scriptures have no consequence on interpretation and are merely variants of spelling such as El Fato or El Feto uh, in your kingdom come in the Lord's Prayer. Such variation in the second in the second aorist spelling is equivalent to variance between British and American spelling of words such as color with a U or color without the U. Robert Louis Dabney, in an article largely defending the Texas Receptus, and he says uh, Robert Louis Dabney followed J.L. Hoog in uh, referring to it as uh, koine ecdosis, um, found only six variants that were doctrinally significant, which in total would hardly constitute two sentences. And as we observed earlier, Dabney's opinion was that no fact or doctrine of Christianity would thereby be invalidated, regardless of how we resolved those disputed texts. And so he's starting off scale of question, and basically he's downplaying the significance of variations in the New Testament. It's interesting the example he gave on an alternate spelling uh, for the verb to come, your kingdom come. But maybe of, of, of more significance there is the fact that in Matthew 6, 13b, the doxology of the Lord's Prayer, that it's omitted in the modern text, it's omitted in modern translations. And that's an issue for those of us who are confessional reform because the doxology uh, is uh, referenced of the Lord's Prayer, is referenced in our confession, it's referenced in our catechisms where the doxology is taught, whether that's the uh, Westminster Shorter Catechism, the Baptist Catechism, or the Heidelberg Catechism. Um, is are, are we having a quest for illegitimate religious certainty because we believe that we should retain the doxology of the Lord's Prayer? Uh, yes, there are some minor spelling differences, but there are also very major differences. When we talk about something like, is the ending of Mark uh, part of Scripture or not? That's 12 verses. Is the woman taken in adultery, part of scripture, that's 12 verses. Well, that's the length of, of a book like Second John or, or, or like Third John. And uh, I would commend again uh, the New Testament textual key that's published by the Trinitarian Bible Society, uh, which surveys hundreds of significant differences in the New Testament. That's just talking about the New Testament. We're not talking about the Old Testament. There are significant Significant textual issues in the Old Testament as well. Uh, let's go on. He says, the two significantly lengthy passages that have textual variants are the longer ending of Mark, Mark 16, 9 through 20, and the pericope adulteri at John 7, 53 through 11, neither of which would alter our understanding of what the scriptures principally teach, namely what man is to believe concerning God and what duty requires of man. Westminster Shorter Catechism uh, 3. Um, let me pause here for a moment. Again, this is the old argument that, well, there are these variants, but it doesn't affect doctrine. Doctrine, And even uh, Dabney said something sort of like that, but not exactly. And, uh, of course, we would disagree with that. Uh, I just finished yesterday writing an article, uh, writing a chapter, actually, for a book that's going to be published, God willing, next year by the Bible League Quarterly. And I was asked to write uh, a chapter for that book. It's a collection of articles by different pastors and scholars. And um, I wrote one on, they asked me to write on in defense of the traditional ending of Mark. And um, 
I, I did that and I, you know, pointed out some of the doctrinal issues. If if Mark 16, 9 through 20 is not authentic, it's it, it means that we would have a gospel with no resurrection appearances. I also spent quite a bit of time talking about how Mark 16, 9 through 20 provides us one of our key passages for defending cessationism, particularly the listing of the sign gifts and their association with the apostles. Um, and so the, uh, Mark 16, 9 through 20 and John 7, 53, 8, 11, uh, 7, 53 through 8, 11 is, in fact, are, in fact, important passages for what man is to believe concerning God and what duties God requires of man. Um, it's not They're not insignificant for that. Uh, toward that. Uh, he says, the several things that the long reading of Mark records in the post-resurrection narrative are affirmed later in other passages. And so he's going to talk especially about um, the sign gifts, and then he gives parallels in the book of Acts. So in, in my name, they will cast out demons, they will speak in new tongues. And then he says that's quoted in Acts, Acts 5.16, the people also gathered, bring the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Also, Acts 8.7, Acts 19.12, and if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. He says Pentecost, that's interesting. Um, I think a better parallel passage uh, would be to point uh, the reader to Luke chapter 10, uh, where we have the sending out of the 70. And uh, in, in Luke chapter 10, when Christ uh, sends out the 70, um, they report to him in verse 19 of Luke 10, Behold, uh, I give unto you power to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Uh, but anyways, he's, he continues here, they will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. And he says, well, that's, you find that in Acts, Acts 28, 3 and 5. And uh, this is the mention in particular of a viper came out of the heat and fastened on his hand. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. And what he's saying is be, these things that are mentioned in, in the traditional ending of Mark, we find them in other places in the book of Acts. And that may be true, but that doesn't say anything about the authenticity of what's there in Mark. I mean, think about it. you could use this argument to say we don't really need four Gospels. Um, as long as we have uh, the Gospel of Matthew, we don't really need Mark. because just about everything in, in Mark is included in Matthew. No, Mark is legitimate on as, as an independent witness to the ministry of Christ. And as I just pointed out in that article I mentioned that I just completed, um, one of the, the things we need to remember is in the early days of Christianity, we think now about the fourfold gospel, rightly so. But in the earliest days, these gospels circulated independently. And so there were then communities that didn't have other gospels to look at or even the book of Acts to look at. They needed a sound gospel of Mark. Um, and I don't think the apostles would have approved of a gospel that went out that wasn't sound. And we know that the traditional ending of Mark was used from the earliest stages. It's quoted by Justin Martyr. It's quoted by Irenaeus of Leon. Um, and there's no question about it, about the antiquity of the traditional ending of Mark. 
Um, he continues, similarly, there is nothing in the disputed variant in John 753 through 811 properly understood that would add anything to what is taught elsewhere. Well, again, I, I want to push back on that. Uh, there's a reason that that passage is a beloved passage. Um, when Christ forgives this woman taken in adultery, that is a profound teaching about the forgiveness of, of sinners. And I think that our scriptures would be deficient without it. Um, he says, contrary to popular opinion, Jesus did not encourage moral relativism, but especially told the woman, from now on, sin no more, emphasis added. Nor did he, as people often think, use the expression cast the first stone metaphorically to mean something like he who is without sin may evaluate life ethically. Adultery was a capital crime in the Mosaic law, and Jesus knew that those who would have her stone were probably guilty of similar sins themselves and may have written their offenses on the ground and were therefore precluded by the Mosaic law from participating in the trial. Stoning a person to death is not the same as respectfully differing on an ethical question. So he's saying we, we would get along just fine without John 7, 53 through 811. Um, actually, some of the things he says here uh, about the sort of moral and ethical issues that emerge from Christ's forgiveness of this woman uh, who uh, we could say the law perhaps taught would be stoned. Um, I believe this is part of why this passage was controversial. And if you want to uh, read my take on that, you can read the little booklet that was published last year that I wrote. It was published by the Trinitarian Bible Society. And I pointed out, I think part of the reason this passage became controversial was because in other conflicts, particularly conflicts related to early Christians uh, who had denied Christ during times of persecution, they were rigorous who did not want to receive those people back into the fellowship. And uh, whereas there were those who thought they should be forgiven, and the people who had denied Christ were sometimes called spiritual adulterers. And so I think that's why this passage became controversial. And uh, you can read my article for some citations of the evidence uh, about that. Um, let's see, last paragraph in this first of three discussions about the scale of the question. He's trying to downplay that the variants aren't that significant, basically. Even in these two lengthiest variants in the Greek New Testament, nothing is added to or deleted from the teaching of the New Testament by including or excluding either passage properly understood. And I'm challenging that. I'm saying, no, um, we don't have a clear gospel teaching about cessationism as clear as what we have in Mark 16. Um, we, we don't have a passage uh, that that is so profoundly tells of Christ forgiving this sinful woman as we have in John chapter 8. Um, and the scriptures would be deficient without these. Um, he says, quote, what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man is unscathed by the inclusion or exclusion of either variant. And again, to my friend P. David Gordon, I would say respectfully, you know what? Liberals would say this about every passage in the Bible. Uh, they would say that your, your, your faith, your well-being doesn't hang on the inclusion or exclusion of any part of Scripture. 
or they would say probably your your well-being doesn't depend on your acceptance of scripture as authoritative and errant. I mean, there there is really, quite honestly, a, a spirit of the relativism of this age in that statement. If we're not clear and sure about scripture, um, haven't we set ourselves up, particularly as Protestants, uh, to have no basis, no authoritative basis upon which we can stand. Um, he continues, <laughs> however, out of our high regard for God's word, we officers, especially pastors, uh, should do our due diligence, as it were, and attempt, whenever variants might influence interpretation, do our best to resolve them. And again, I find this a bit problematic, too, because is it really the duty of every minister to sort through these variants and come to his own private interpretation about them. We've already talked about the fact that, that in fact, the truth is many ministers are not capable in the original languages. And, uh, you know, it's funny, the editor was talking about earlier that he used the ESV because that's what his denomination said was their, was their Bible. But here we have T. David Gordon saying, you know, every minister stands in the pulpit and makes his own decisions about to his people about what the text of the Bible is. And I think in this area, we would be vulnerable to the criticisms of our Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox friends who say that Protestantism is problematic because it doesn't offer any uh, firm understanding of the Bible. They could say we've got the magisterium. If, if Protestants don't have a sure text of the Bible, then uh, our, the basis for our epistemology is undermined. Let's move on to his second uh, point. Uh, no, I think this is actually, what was his second point? His second point is going to be on the uh, text types and then the words church officers. But anyway, let's just keep reading. Um he says the next heading is received text versus majority text uh, versus uh, eclectic critical text, a little history. And by the way, um, I think T. David Gordon here rightly acknowledges that there are three choices, not two, as the editor had said in the previous editorial I read. He said there's either majority text or, or modern critical text. But T. David Gordon is saying received text, majority text or eclectic uh, reason eclectic text or modern critical text, but he's going to talk about the history a little bit. Uh, most church officers know that many lay people have never even thought about what uh, what many lay people have never even thought about. We do not have the original manuscript of any part of the Bible. What we have is or are thousands, including the fragmentary evidence, about 7,000 of manuscripts that contain all or portions of the Greek New Testament. Unsurprisingly, no two of those hand-copied manuscripts is identical to another. On the other hand, there are not 7,000 different variants for each variation. There is widespread agreement among students of the Greek New Testament in that there are three, possibly four different families of textual variation. Within these families, Byzantine, Western, Alexandrian, and some recognize a Caesarean, most of the readings are the same. In any given passage, then, it is rare to have more than two or three minor variants. 
though there may well be thousands of particular manuscripts that represent one or another of the variants. So I'm going to pause here. And so his three things were scarcity. Then he said text families. I thought he was it was just going to be received text, majority text, and modern critical text. But he does here now start to talk about so-called text types. And again, this is another area, with all due respect to T. David Gordon, this, is, this takes us back to his initial comment that from his perspective, there haven't been any paradigm shifts. And uh, with all due respect to T. David Gordon, uh, I think he needs to go back and read the preface to the Nestle on 28th edition of 2012, where the editors explain that they are not doing the old type of modern textual criticism based on these text families that he presupposes. In fact, if you read uh, modern text critics like uh, David C. Parker and others, they will tell you that these uh, text families have been eclipsed. There is no Western text. There is no Alexandrian text. There is no Caesarean text. Uh, the, the only text they say still exists, text type or text family, is the Byzantine text type. And I saw recently that there are a group of, of scholars who are going to be having a conference uh, uh, later this year uh, talking about text types. And there are some evangelicals who I think uh, want to revive the idea of text types but according to, to those who are real, the real gatekeepers uh, of the modern critical text, uh, those using the coherence-based genealogical method, they no longer talk about text types. So with, with all due respect to T. David Gordon, I, I don't think he understands that. And, and he doesn't understand how that is bringing about a crisis in textual criticism because they're not, if you read these text critics, they're not talking about, well, the Alexandrian text type says this and the Western text type says this. Um, they're, not, they're not using that nomenclature any longer. Um, he continues, when people undertake a translation, they must first decide whether to regard some family variants to be the default or not. Do the transos work from representative manuscripts of the Byzantine family of texts, the Western text, or the Alexandrian text, or from an eclectic critical text? Obviously, a translation committee cannot re-argue such a basic matter every day. To the contrary, most translation committees have made their decision beforehand and agreed to work one way or another, and their translations later reflect that choice. Here are three options ordinarily considered. Um, on this, I, I, I'm not sure if T. David Gordon has ever worked on a translation of the Bible uh, in English or another language. I have not. Um, but if you read the preface to these translations, you'll find that that actually I, I think they're not they're when, when they start to do a translation, they're not doing textual criticism. They generally choose a a text. Um, and most modern translations, for example, choose the most recent uh, edition of the Nestle Aland or the United Bible Societies. And they usually in the preface say, we're using NA27. We're using, you know, UBS, NA27 and UBS4. Or we're using uh, NA28 and UBS5. Um, maybe in individual passages, they when they take a, uh, they may take a departure from the Nestle Alon text, and they may do a little bit of looking at manuscripts. 
Um, but it seems to me that when they make translations in particular, they're not doing what he suggests here that scholars do. Um, but anyway, he's going to talk about you got three choices for what your foundational text is going to be. And, and here he's going to get at what I, where I thought he was going. And the first one that he's going to discuss is the Texas Receptus. So let's let's look at what T. David Gordon says about the TR. And we can at least appreciate the fact that he is discussing the TR, unlike the editor just sort of said it's a subset of the majority text. Um, he begins, Desiderius Erasmus, who lived from 1467 to 1536, of Rotterdam, published his magnum opus, 1516, the first printed edition of the Greek New Testament, in contrast to handwritten manuscripts. He consulted Lorenzo Valla's annotations on the New Testament, and he also consulted the biblical commentaries of the Church Fathers and published four editions of his Greek New Testament. Erasmus was a skilled and dedicated Renaissance humanist, but he had very few manuscripts to work from, as Bruce Metzger has said. For the book of Revelation, he had but one manuscript dating from the 12th century, which he had borrowed from his friend Reuchlin. As it happened, this copy lacked the final leaf, which had contained the last six verses of the book. For these verses, Erasmus depended upon Jerome's uh, Latin Vulgate, translating this version into Greek. Let me pause here for a moment. Uh, this is a scholarly anecdote, and you'll notice that it's cited from a secondary source. It comes from Bruce Metzger's textual commentary, influential textual commentary. Um, but in truth, um, I think this whole story is questionable. Um, for one thing, I, I think Erasmus makes reference in uh, his annotations uh, to, to more than one uh, manuscript of the book of Revelation. And I think uh, modern scholars, in truth, don't really know with uh, perfect omniscience uh, all the things that Erasmus had at his disposal. And there are a lot of other things, ways I would approach this. First of all, they, they make it out as though the ending of Revelation in Erasmus's printed editions is wildly different from what we find in Greek manuscripts or in printed editions. It's not wildly different. Um, one day in the future, I'm going to write an article on it. I haven't had time to do it yet, but I'm just suspect that his source for this is not a primary source. He doesn't cite Erasmus. He cites a secondary source. And uh, when scholars do that, often with Erasmus, they're often circulating um, scholarly anecdotes that arose in the 19th century in part to undermine the authority of the received text and to undermine Erasmus. But let's, let's continue. I, I'll, I'm not going to go deep on that right now. He says, several decades later, Robert Estion, or Stephanus, published editions of the Greek New Testament in 1546, 1549, 1550, and 1551, revising the earlier editions of Erasmus, which had been printed from 1516 to 1535. Stephanus used 14 other Greek Byzantine manuscripts along with the Complutensian Polyglot, in his 1550 edition, and even two other Alexandrian codices, which were given loan to him by Italian friends. These Byzantine manuscripts, not surprisingly, concurred 
with the addition of Erasmus, and the Stephanus edition is nearly identical to that of Erasmus. These printed manuscripts became the basis of nearly all of the European translations of the Reformation era and the immediate post-Reformation with such as the King James Version. Um, well, that's in part true. There was also, there were other uh, uh, printings of the received text that were also used by the authorized version translators in particular, most notably uh, Beza's uh, 1598 Greek New Testament. Um, but let's go on. He says, not too much later, the Elsevier brothers, Leiden 1633, printed their second edition of a Greek text nearly identical to the text of Erasmus and Stephanus, and the preface contained this, textum ergo habes nunc ab omnibus receptum in quo nihil immutatum aut corruptum damus. Therefore, you now have the text received by all, in which we give nothing changed or corrupted. From this preface, the expression textus receptus came, and from the Elsevier brothers, borrowing nearly uh, entirely the work of Erasmus and Stephanus, came the Greek text used for nearly all translations until the 19th century. And so he's talking about that you had these various printed editions of the Greek New Testament that sort of uh, culminated with the Elsevier editions, uh, which included in the preface to the 1633, the statement that called it the received text. Just one little correction here. And uh, I've seen this written in various places, and I have done so myself. He refers to the Elsevier brothers. A couple of years ago in 2017, I wrote a book, wrote a book, wrote an article that was titled Erasmus Anecdotes. And in that article, I was talking about stories that were circulated in the 19th century about Erasmus. And I wasn't dealing with the ending of Revelation, but I was dealing with the Coma Ioanneum. First uh, John 5, 7, and 8. And there were a lot of stories that circulated that simply quoted secondary sources and not primary sources about how um, Erasmus had rushed his first edition into print, how that um, he had made a rash wager that if any manuscript could be produced that has the Komayonam, he would include it. And I had run across the writings of a very respected Dutch New Testament scholar named Hunk de Jong, and he has debunked uh, that particular Erasmian anecdote about the Coma Ioanneum, and I'm getting somewhere with this. I sent him, back in 2017, my article, Erasmus Anecdotes, that had appeared in the Puritan Reform Journal because I wanted to get his feedback on whether what I had written there was accurate. And he and I corresponded and um, he gave me a very favorable feedback on my article, affirmed it as a good article. Of course, a lot of it I was using a lot of his material in. But anyways, he very kindly in an email to me said, there are two things that need to be corrected, though, in your article. He said, first, you referred to the Elsevier brothers. And he very kindly pointed out to me that actually... The Elseviers, Bonaventure and Abraham, were not brothers, but uh, Bonaventure was the uncle and Abraham was the nephew. And again, I'm going on the authority here of Hank de Jong, 
that this that this is accurate. But I noticed that in a lot of writings, just like you hear in T. David Gordon, he referred to them as the Elsevier brothers. But according to Hank de Jong, they were not brothers. Uh, it was an uncle and a nephew uh, who were in this Dutch publishing house that was pr producing this Greek New Testament. The second error he said is, I referred to him in the article as an Erasmian scholar. And he said, I'm not an Erasmian scholar. I'm a New Testament scholar. But he is. He knows a lot about Erasmus. Um, anyways, let, let's go on. Uh, he says, a small misnomer exists here because, in fact, the so-called received text is no longer received by all individuals or traditions as sacrosanct. And yes, there are, there are those who are challenging the received text, but the, the received text uh, was the received text for, called that for a reason because it was the, the, the text that was most widely received by Protestants. Um, and used by them in their commentaries, in their translations, in their scholarly work, um, and, uh, and and so forth. Uh, he says, it ordinarily refers to the Stephanus Erasmus text, which we all know was not based on a complete Greek manuscript. Well, no, we don't all know that. You've given us one secondary reference to a couple of verses in Revelation. Um, we know from Erasmus that he said that he wanted to make sure that uh, his uh, Greek New Testament was based on the originals. And also, it's interesting, he makes the mention of Beza. The Stephanus editions and the Erasmus editions are, are not uh, the beginning and end of the printed, uh, received uh, text family, I would say. He says, the concept of received text, however, is somewhat commendable because regardless, regarding textual matters, it is similar to the, the Vincentian uh, canon, quod ubique, quod semper, quod ab omnibus creditum est, what has been believed everywhere, always, and by all. And th this is from an early Christian writer named Vincent, who said the orthodox matter was what was believed everywhere, always, and by all. And he says, perhaps this is what Robert Louis Dabney meant when he said, let it be that the received text has usurped the position by accident or been assigned to it by providence. The all-important fact is that it holds it. It is far better for the interests of truth that Christendom should recognize as a commonly received Bible a less accurate text than that it should receive recognize none. And here he's making the point that I sort of referred to with Dabney, that Dabney was trying to deal with and countenance all the um, the criticisms that were coming with the rise of modern criti textual criticism. But he was saying, even if uh, the received text has places where it could be improved, it should not be abandoned as the standard. Now, for me, I think that's a little too pragmatic an argument in favor of the received text. I think it's not only simply a pragmatic issue, but my question is, is it the word of God? If it is the word of God, it should be received. And if it is the word of God, it means that God has preserved it. Um, so his last sentence here, to be sure not every individual would agree that with Dabney that a less accurate text approved by consensus would be preferable to a more accurate text, but his point is at least judicious. What should not be overlooked, however, 
is that Erasmus's text actually was an eclectic critical text, even though he had many fewer manuscripts to work from than others later did. Well, it doesn't matter if you have more manuscripts or less. What matters is whether or not you have accurate manuscripts. And although, yes, we could say perhaps that Erasmus's text was an eclectic text and, and that he wasn't going off of one single manuscript, it was not modern reasoned eclecticism uh, because it relied on uh, what uh, Hills calls the logic of faith. And this is where many people go awry when they misunderstand and look at the Reformation of Protestant Orthodox men. No one is saying they didn't know about textual variants. They did, but they were not doing modern textual criticism because they gave place for the logic of faith. They gave place to the analogia fide. Modern textual critics do not do that. They're not saying we want to look at uh, what uh, has been received by the church, what has been used by the church, what God in, in his providence has allowed, has permitted to be of use in his church. They're wanting to use purely empirical reason uh, taken away from spiritual concerns. Um, so that's the first, the Texas Receptus. And of course, he doesn't give a very positive uh, assessment of the Texas Receptus. What about the majority text? The only two paragraphs here. The majority text avoids the obvious problem that the Texas Receptus has, that Erasmus conceded that a portion of Revelation was missing from his primary manuscript, and he provided his own free translation from the Latin Vulgate. Again, this is all from one secondary citation from Metzger, and I'm not going to hold to it till you show me some primary evidence. Um, anyways, majority text advocates are not enslaved or even beholden to the Erasmus text. They do, however, show great deference to the majority of manuscripts. And the majority of manuscripts available today are from the Byzantine tradition. Most of those manuscripts are fairly late. Manuscripts degrade over time. And of course, we have more of the more recent manuscripts than we do of the less recent manuscripts. Some, not all advocates of the majority text, argue providentially that there are that these are the manuscripts preserved in greater number than other types of, of texts. And they were, in fact, the manuscript tradition from which the first Protestant translations were made. Dabney's ecclesiastical argument mentioned earlier. Other advocates argue empirically that the majority of available manuscripts today happen to be Byzantine. Who does he cite here? Uh, he, say, he says, I honestly do not know uh, what would happen in this view if, say, a calendar year throughout the globe, archaeologists found hundreds, perhaps thousands of Alexandrian manuscripts. Would majority text advocates propose new translations based on the new majority? One advantage of the eclectic critical text is that it welcomes new manuscripts discoveries and need not abandon its principles upon their discovery. By any orthodox theory of divine providence, it did not cease in, by any orthodox theory of divine providence, it did not cease in the early 16th century. Boy, there's a, there's a lot to say, a lot to unpack about this. Um, first of all, he's actually offering here a good critique of the majority text position. As part of the reason I reject the majority text position, I've written an article that was in the Bible League Quarterly 
suggesting five challenges or five questions to those who hold a majority tax. And one of those questions was that um, they say they hold to the what are now the extant majority tax, but but their check their text could change if there were more discoveries. And I also point out that there are many places in the New Testament, especially in the book of Revelation, where they cannot determine what the majority text is. There are some places where we do not have uh, many, many manuscripts of the New Testament. We have many, many manuscripts of the Gospels, but when you get outside the Gospels, there are places where it's hard to determine what is the majority text. Um, and again, they're also open to, you might have new discoveries that would change what the majority is, and so your text would change. Now, now he says, that's not a problem for reason eclecticism. Well, of course it is. Reason eclecticism, it's even worse because they're saying no text in the Bible is stable. This was the question I asked to James White in our debate. Um, could there be discoveries that would, is there any text in the Bible you think is going to always stay the same? And he had, he had to say no. And so this gives us a Bible that is perpetually um, uncertain if you accept either the majority text or the modern critical text, really the received text is the only choice that gives you a text that is stable, uh, that will not change based on uh, any possible manuscript discoveries or, or new methods that scholars come up with or uh, computer algorithms that are developed as we're seeing happen uh, in uh, the 21st century with these, the coherence-based genealogical method. Now, he makes this little dig here. He says, by any orthodox theory of divine providence, it did not cease in the early 16th century. And sometimes you'll have people say, oh, you're saying that you believe in the providential preservation. Well, you you think it stopped in the, in the 16th century or in the 17th century or or, or whatever. And our, our, our response to that, well, of course not. Um, it God's providence is continuing to uphold his word. If he were not continuing to uphold it and keep it, it would be abandoned. So our view doesn't say that, that providence ended or the providential preservation of scripture ended in the 16th or the 17th centuries. It continues up to this very day. And it continues to compel men to want to read the Bible from the received text. So it's an ongoing work of preservation that is taking place. Um, boy, this is a long article, friends. But let's let's keep let's keep laboring away and see what we can do. So this is the third. And this is his preferred position. Let's see what he says about the eclectic critical text. He says many, probably most, academic scholars of the Bible adopt what is called an eclectic or critical text, basing their translations on a consultation of all the available manuscripts, including early versions and patristic sources, attempting to account for the variants. What kind of mistakes do scribes typically make? What families of texts appear to be more reliable than others? Let me pause here for a moment. Um, CBGM doesn't use patristic evidence. This is another place where, with all due respect to T. David Gordon, there has been there have been paradigm shifts happening. But let's let's continue. Uh, which variants appear in several families of texts? Printed editions of the Greek New Testament by the major Bible societies of the United States and Germany contain marginal information about the alternative alternative readings and the manuscripts in which they are found. 
so that translators may make their own decisions or at least understand why the translators made theirs. Advocates of the eclectic critical approach may or may not have their own version of a providential argument to wit and God's infallible providence. These are the kinds of errors that fallible humans make. And if God's providence preserves some very ancient manuscripts in which there is a lesser likelihood of numerous generations of copying errors, we should avail ourselves of that providential reality. Advocates of this approach make the same kind of assessments of biblical manuscripts that students of the Greek classical literature make of Aristotle or Plato. Now, it seems to me that T. David Gordon here is trying to appropriate some understanding of the providential preservation of scripture uh, to modern textual criticism. And we've talked about this before. This is a redefinition of what providential preservation is. The old definition, as uh, was used, in, I think, in Westminster Confession of Faith 1.8, which is going to talk about kept pure in all ages, meant that not that that the, the Bible was preserved in a massive manuscript so that a group of scholars could pile through them and approximate maybe sort of what the text is, but they believed that God had preserved the word down to the jot and tittle so that what they read in the old copies, the faithful copies, and what they read then in the printed editions of the Bible, and then what they read in their translations was the word of God. It was not simply an approximation of the word of God. It's also interesting that he said that modern textual criticism is essentially doing what classical textual criticism does. So working with the Bible is just like working with Aristotle or Plato. And we've said before, I, I sound like a broken record, I'm sure. Some people are wondering what's a record. But anyways, um, it, it's the, the problem is the Bible cannot be treated like secular literature. It's not secular literature. It must be placed in a special category because it is God-breathed literature. It's inspired literature. Uh, let's continue. Advocates of the eclectic critical text also recall that the received text and the majority text are themselves eclectic critical. Erasmus consulted the Vulgate and himself when he freely translated the Latin into Greek at the end of Revelation. Again, uh, secondary anecdotal story. And Stephanus consulted over a dozen Greek manuscripts. Therefore, the difference in the three approaches is actually on a spectrum. The received text tradition consults very few manuscripts, possibly only one. I'm not sure what if he thinks the received text is based on one manuscript. I, I don't know where that comes from. Um, but he's saying it's all just a spectrum. The received text was an eclectic text, and they just didn't have enough manuscripts. The majority text, he says, by definition, consults many texts with a tendency to prefer the Byzantine manuscripts since they are more numerous than the Western or Alexandrian manuscripts. And the eclectic critical text consults any text it can find. As I put it, consult any manuscript God's providence makes available. So again, he's trying to take the high ground. We really, we have the real providential preservation of view. And again, uh, the received text, the traditional text of the New Testament is not in any sense a an eclectic text in the way that that the modern reasoned eclectic text is an eclectic text. Um, it is, again, a text that is not based on empirical study of the data 
but it is based on also the logic of faith. And so in that sense, it's not another eclectic text. Um, he continues, readers of Ordained Servant will be interested in knowing how or whether our confessional standards address the matter, especially the first portion of Confession of Faith 1.8, which reads, now here he's going to talk about um, 1.8, and I think he's going to try to give an alternative understanding of what, what seems obvious, kept pure in all ages, means. Uh, he says, the Old Testament Hebrew, which was the native language of the people of God of old, and the New Testament in Greek, which at the time of the writing of it was most generally known to the nations, being immediately inspired by God, and by his singular care and providence, kept pure in all ages, are therefore authentical. So, as in all controversy of religion, the church is finally to appeal unto them. He says, parentheses, theirs. Uh, some portions of this are quite straightforward, especially the result clause at the end. So, as in all controversies of, of religion, the church is finally to appeal unto them. This clause precludes the possibility of any given translation of the Bible having privileged status and was likely an implicit denial of the Roman Catholic Church's adoption of Jerome's Vulgate as its authoritative Bible. Two other parts of the confession statement require a little more work to determine their meaning, singular and kept pure. Singular care and providence emphasis added is one of the several quaint expressions found in the Westminster documents. And its quaintness assists, assists in making it memorable. Consulting Oxford, the Oxford English Dictionary, one finds a movement from the absolute to the comparative sense of singular. The absolute definitions of the adjective employ the term in an almost mathematical sense. Alone, solitary, one only, one and no more, single, exclusive, sole, forming the only one of the kind, unique, separate, individual, single. Note the more, uh, more comparative uses, separate from others by reason of superiority or preeminence, above the ordinary in amount, extent, worth, or value, uh, special, common from 1550 to 1650, now rare, remarkable, extraordinary, unusual, uncommon, hence rare, precious, especially, particularly. Westminster certainly did not employ singular in the absolute sense. Well, of course they didn't. Um, they're talking about God. They're not talking about the text there, by the singular care and providence, by God's singular care and providence. Um, so, yes, um, I don't think anybody would dispute that. By that, they meant the remarkable, sovereign providence of God. Yes. Um, but it was a remarkable providence that was preserving the true text. And there are not many texts. There's one true text. But I don't think the word singular there is referring to that. It's referring to the actions of God, the works of God being singular, extraordinary, singular or extraordinary. Um, God's ordering of all things, God, the great creator of all things, doth uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, action and things from the greatest even to the least by his most wise and holy providence. The emphasis added, we may safely assume that the assembly used the term in its comparative sense of special, extraordinary, unusual, common. Yes, I'll go with that. That doesn't undermine uh, the traditional view of providential preservation. 
Uh, yes, it was the special, extraordinary work of God, meaning it did not come about through uh, merely human means, not merely a group of men getting a mass of manuscripts and trying to sort through them. And supposedly, as some modern text critics put a puzzle together uh, that has 110 pieces and you only need 100 to put the puzzle together. No, it's saying God, God in an extraordinary, special manner, uh, kept his word by the singular care and providence of God. Um, let's move on, though. Uh, presumably, uh, presumably, for instance, God's providence also superintended the preservation of the writings of Plato and Aristotle. Well, not in the same way that they did the Bible, because it, Plato and Aristotle are not God-breathed word. God's God-breathed word. And the salvation and well-being of, of men does not depend on the preservation of Plato and Aristotle. He continues, but the manuscript evidence for their writings is extremely scant compared to the manuscript evidence for biblical texts. In the 1930 Loeb edition of Plato's Republic, for instance, edited by Jeffrey Henderson, he lists only 13 manuscripts available. Similarly, in Harris Rackham's 1926 introduction to Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics in the Loeb series, he lists only six manuscripts and says, other manuscripts have been collated by other scholars, but none has any authority, another witness ranking in importance next to the best manuscripts is a 13th century Latin translation attributed to William of Morbeek's emphasis added. Rackham had only two reliable Greek manuscripts for the ethics, and his next most reliable witness was a 13th century Latin text. The assembly would not have known of how great the discrepancy was between the manuscript evidence for the Bible compared to other ancient works, but they correctly knew God had a special singular interest in the scriptures, an interest so singular that we now know that the assembly underestimated how singular God's providence for the scripture was. Now, this gets kind of confusing here, but there's, I think, a, a lapse in judgment in the argument here because um, there are actually many places where we don't have a lot of extant evidence, old evidence for the Greek New Testament. Um, yes, we may have a good number of old copies from the year 1000 and later, but in many cases, we only have a handful of ancient manuscripts. And so that's a little better than what is preserved for Aristotle and for Plato. Um, and in fact, this was the subject of an article that was in the Myths and Mistakes book that was edited by Peter Gurry and Elijah Hickson, that these old evangelical arguments about how we have this wealth, uh, we have these riches of New Testament manuscripts that they don't have in classical textual criticism. Uh, the author of that article, I forget who it was, he points out that sometimes that argument is overstated. Um, and it needs to be corrected. And this would be another place where I would say, with all due respect to T. David Gordon, where maybe there's another kind of paradigm shift going on. Um, anyways, let's let's go on and see what he says from here. He says, the assemblies kept pure in all ages, also mildly challenging to interpret. Um, now we're going to get down to what does it mean that, that God extended his singular and special care to keep the word pure in all ages? The Oxford English Dictionary expends three pages to list the varying uses of pure. 
To begin, we may rule out what the assembly did not mean. They did not mean that there were no spelling, punctuation, accenting, or simple copying errors in the manuscripts of the Bible. Of course not. Um, there were there were textual variants in the uh, transmission of the handwritten copies of the Bible. Uh, many, if not all, members of the assembly would have been aware of the previous century's text-critical activity, and they would have been aware of the publication of the Complutensian Polyglot in 1517. They probably intended one or more of these OED usages. Uh, not having in or upon it anything that defiles, corrupts, or impairs. Intact, unbroken, perfect, entire, without foreign or extraneous admixture. Free from anything not properly pertaining to it. Free from corruption or defilement. The genuine article, the real thing. Yeah, that's what they meant by pure. Uh, they meant that the, what they had in their hands was the word of God, and it had been kept pure by God, and they were not hoping to possibly reconstruct the text based on piling through uh, uh, mounds of manuscripts to figure out what it might possibly could be. Uh, the assembly probably meant that despite the routine copying errors, nothing of substance had been lost or added to the biblical manuscripts. It's more than that. They believe they actually had it right there. And this is Richard Brash has made this point that for the, the, the Protestant Orthodox, uh, they believe there was a practical univocity between the autographs and the faithful opographs that they had in the printed editions of their era. Um, they were not hoping to reconstruct it one day. They believed they had the pure word of God in their day. Um, but that's not quite the, the way T. David Gordon is going to see it. Um, anyway, let, let's continue. Da-da-da. Uh, uh, let's see. Uh, they probably they, they probably intended one of the more. You already read that. Um, let's just start here. Especially pertinent in our conversation is that the assembly's language was about the scriptures in their entirety as attested by several many manuscripts. The assembly did not refer to or endorse any particular manuscript or group of manuscripts of the scriptures. Agreed, they did not. But what were they talking about? They, they, they said in chapter 1, paragraph 8, the Bible had been immediately inspired in uh, the Old Testament in the Hebrew and in the New Testament in the Greek. And what was the Hebrew text they had and what was the Greek text they had. They had the Masoretic text of the Hebrew Bible. They had the received text of the Greek New Testament. No, they did not point to any particular manuscripts, but they believed that they had the immediately inspired scriptures. They referred to the Old Testament in Hebrew and the New Testament in Greek, but not to any specific manuscript of either. They made no claim similar to that later made by Joseph Smith, that he had the actual manuscripts of divine revelation akin to the tablets Moses brought down from the mountain at Sinai. This, I think, is a, is a strange point to make here. And I think what he's trying to subtly do is saying that anybody who believes that they actually have the word of God, they are committing some kind of error like Joseph Smith did. And uh, I think it's absurd and really offensive to say that if you're a traditional Christian who believes that God has fully preserved his word and we have it now 
in the traditional Reformation text, and we're not we're not hoping we might reconstruct it later, that we have the same warped bibliology of Mormons. Is that really what you're saying? Um, well, I, I I don't think that is uh, a very charitable or accurate way, accurate comparison to make. Uh, he continues, my preference for the eclectic critical text uh, is motivated by two things. First, since I believe God's providence orders all things, said providence somehow includes the variety we find in different manuscripts or in different manuscript traditions. So again, it's a redefinition of what providential preservation is, not that God had kept his word by a singular care, pure in all ages, but that somehow he's, he has preserved this mass of manuscripts through which uh, text critics can use the art and science of modern textual criticism to reconstruct the text. Certainly, there's no language like that in uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 1, paragraph 8. Second, the eclectic text is inclusive. The Textus Receptus and majority texts are exclusive. Well, the only thing in the end we really care about is whether or not a text is inclusive of the original inspired word of God or whether it's exclusive of it. And he hasn't said anything that's convinced me that the Textus Receptus excludes the authentic original word of God. Um, he says, an individual such as myself working from an eclectic text, whether the United Bible Society 4 or Nestle Aland 28, could in each case decide that the TR or uh, uh, MT is the preferred reading. Indeed, these two major eclectic texts print all the significant and even and, and some of the insignificant variants in the margins. By contrast, one who has committed the TR or even the Masoretic text is committed thereby to binding his vision and from even considering some of the oldest extant manuscripts available to us. So if we if we say we believe we have the Bible in the Masoretic text and in the received text, he says we are binding ourselves. And I, I would just test this. If, if someone said, I believe in the doctrine of the Trinity, would it be right to say, oh, you're binding yourself. You're binding yourself to one kind of doctrinal viewpoint. Wouldn't you rather be freer and be willing to accept non-Trinitarian interpretations? Now, the question is, is it true or not? If I hold to it and it's true, there's nothing wrong with me wanting to have an exclusive um, understanding of it and, and to hold to it tenaciously. That's not a, a negative thing. Um, so uh, anyways, let, let's continue. He says, I at least have all 52 cards on the table, even if I only or ordinarily select the Byzantine cards. Oh, wait a second. He's, he's gone back to talk about uh, binding vision for even considering some of the oldest estate manuscripts. We don't need to consider them if they're not the word of God, do we? I at least have all 52 cards on the table, even if I only or ordinarily selected the Byzantine cards. The alternative approach, approach is remove some cards from the deck. The deck, I remind, that is here due to God's singular care and providence. Well, there were, there were, there were many manuscripts that were available uh, to the men of the Reformation era, and 
they rejected them. They did not accept them. Does that mean that they were they were not playing? They weren't playing with a full deck. <laughs> um, of course not. It's not wrong to exclude things that are not part of the true text. Um, we would would not want to include spurious uh, things, nor would we want to exclude the things that are authentic and original. Um, all right. Let's go on to, this is a long article. Can I say that again? This is the last part. He talked about um, uh, the scale of the issue. He talked about um, text families. Then he talked about there are three choices, the received text, the majority text, or the reason, modern reason eclectic. And finally, he's going to talk about council of church officers. He says, uh, whichever translation of whichever text is read from the pulpit or the pew a conscientious reader will occasionally correct the translation. Even if we adopt and employ the right text or group of texts, no one suggests that a given translation is inerrant, though some defenders of the authorized version, KJV, come very close to affirming such. Um, I would go further and say if, you hold, if you're a King James Version onlyist, uh, you're presenting a non-confessional view. But no one that I know of who is is a proponent of the Reformation text or confessional bibliology would uh, say that uh, we're standing simply for the King James Version of the translation. We may prefer the King James Version, may think the King James Version is the best translation for various reasons. But if we're talking about the text, um, we believe the text is the thing that was immediately inspired. Translations are not immediately inspired. And so there may be something like a straw man here that's being uh, uh, attacked. He says, whichever English translation we adopt on whatever grounds will be, there will be occasions where we, we will disagree with it. I use the ESV in the pulpit, but there are times when I correct it. This translation of Romans 12, 2 reads that by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, emphasis added, which is an ungainly mouthful. The RSV is simply incorrectly that you may prove what is the will of God. Well, that's the difference between testing and prove, um, emphasis added, which is a perfectly good way of translating the infinitive, uh, Um, As another example, Westminster questionably cited John 5.39 on two occasions. At Westminster Confession of Faith 1.8, they referred to people who are commanded in the fear of God to read and search the scriptures. Emphasis added. And again, at Westminster, larger catechism, 156, which says all sorts of people are bound to read it apart by themselves and with their families, to which end the Holy Scriptures are to be translated out of the original into vulgar languages. Emphasis added. In each case, Westminster proof texts the KJV based on the Texas Receptus of John 539. Search the Scriptures, for in them... You think you have eternal life. Every first-year Greek student, however, knows that the present active indicative and the present active imperative of the second person plural is spelled in identical fashion. Aralnate, it is, of course, textually and grammatically possible that the verb is an imperative. It is equally possible, however, that the verb is a mere indicative, meaning something like, although you search the scriptures uh, that testify about me, you refuse to come to me. An irony 
very characteristic of John's gospel. The you in the passage is plural, retained nicely by the KJV ye. But Westminster understands the passage to teach that the people individually understood are required to read the scriptures privately and their families, which would have been impossible prior to the invention of the printing press and is impossible still today among the many smaller indigenous groups who are not literate or have no Bible in their language. So even though the KJV used the right text and the Westminster employed the right translation of the right text, Westminster erred in both of its citations and the text. Now, I'm going to take exception to this also. I mean, he, he's he's pointing out something that's that's true. The Westminster Confession of Faith assumes in John 5.39, where Christ says, um, let me just read it, search the scriptures, and let me... Uh, read the uh, read it in, in its entire um, context, uh, if I can. John chapter five and uh, verse thirty nine. Christ is speaking uh, to his opponents, and he says, "Search the scriptures, for in them ye think that ye have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me." And I agree with him. There is, if you look not just at the Westminster Confession of Faith. And I haven't done as extensive a study of this that I, as I would like to do, but I have noticed as I've read uh, various Protestant authors, Reformed authors, that they, they that they took uh, John five thirty nine as an imperative, and he just pointed out grammatically, it can be rendered as an imperative. It can also be rendered as an, as an indicative, but I would say the Protestant reading tradition took this as an imperative: search the scriptures. As a command, go and look at the scriptures. Go look at them, and you're rejecting what they say about me. And that's not a wrong interpretation. And it is, I think, the definitive Protestant use. It's not because of the King James Version. This was in Tyndale's translation. This is in the Geneva Bible. It's in the Bishop's Bible, I, I believe. And, and so it's it's kind of a, a, a Protestant consensus. And so I don't think it's correct to say that, that they were wrong. And in fact, I would say that we ought to consider if we're in the Protestant tradition of receiving this translation as it was uh, accepted uh, at the time of the Reformation. Although I think we can say, yes, uh, it can be uh, translated as an indicative. Um, so, any, at any rate, um, I guess he's trying to say that the Westminster Confession of Faith sometimes assumes a Protestant reading tradition that has been challenged in the modern era. The example he gives here is not an example of text, but it's an example of, of translation. But I would say there's good reason to stick with the traditional Protestant translation of that passage. He says ministers and other interpreters should be very cautious about making homiletical mountains of textual molehills. Jesus had little good to say about religious leaders who abused their authority, especially when, in doing so, they made life difficult for those who ought to have, who have served. The scribes and Pharisees tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to, to move them with their finger. A robust understanding of divine providence includes a reality that we have more evidence 
for some ideas than we do for others. And there is nothing wrong with saying about matters, we do not have a compelling case. Well, I mean, there's some part of this I, I agree with, um, but it, it, let me ask you this. Is the problem, you think, in most evangelical churches, I'm not in the OPC, is the problem in most OPC churches or most Reformed Baptist churches that we have a bunch of heavy-handed uh, traditional text advocates who say that you you must only use our translation? Actually, we, that's not the case. <laughs> um, what's more likely the case are ministers who insist that you use the English Standard Version. And let me just turn this around. If you're an officer in the church, are you going to have a charitable attitude towards people in your flock who you want to use the authorized version? Or you want to use even the New King James Version? Or are you going to demand that they use a translation based on the modern critical text? See, this, this knife cuts both ways. And no, elders, officers shouldn't be overbearing. They shouldn't be lording it over people, but they should be teaching the people uh, with gentleness. Um, and uh, they should be teaching the people to come to um, clear convictions about things. Um, he continues, pastors and elders of growing congregations face the occasional challenges of purchasing more hymnals or more pew Bibles. Should we pur purchase 50 more of what we now have, or should we purchase 100 of an alternate? Sometimes the question is fairly easily answered because the session may have already noticed defects in the current hymnals of the pew or pew bibles for some time the 1990 revised trinity hymnal for instance was superior overall to the one that it replaced many tunes were set in a lower key signature to make them easier to sing thus encouraging congregational singing similarly both the notes and lyrics were printed in larger more legible font i would probably be far less likely to adopt a new pew bible unless it were one known to be more readable the New King James Version, New American Standard Bible, and several other good, accurate translations are extremely difficult to read aloud. Hmm, I haven't heard that. The New King James is difficult to read aloud. Hmm, maybe the NASB, because it, it, it follows uh, a more, attempts a more rigid word-for-word. Uh, -word. Anyways, considering the expense of all, then making such a switch, in most circumstances, it would be better for the minister simply to correct the version as part of the sermon, as I routinely do, if discussing, for example, the ESV rendering of Romans 12.2, see above, contemporary versions based on the eclectic text, for example, NIV, ESV, routinely have marginal notes, explain the differences in the manuscripts, and a thoughtful expositor could easily give his reasons for adopting the alter alternate in the sermon. Unfortunately, al the alternate alternative is not true. The translations based on the Texas Receptus, KJV, NKJV, will not ordinarily include the alternative readings. Well, that's not true. The New King James Version, New King James Version, New King James Version has more textual notes than any other. Uh, it continues, and the majority text has not yet been entirely translated in English. Great point. That's one of my five questions about the majority text and why there's no good reason to use it because it's never been translated and it's never been practically used in Christian churches. Um, so that's one reason why we just reject the majority text as an option. And really, in the end, it's are you going to use the received text or are you going to use the modern critical text? But anyways, let me get back to his point here. Um, 
what he's what he's basically saying is you're a pastor of a congregation you've got to you know you've got to have a translation to use and rather than buying a whole new bunch of bibles you can just um, make corrections from the pulpit and a couple things i would say about this and it, it's it came to, more to my mind last year i think it was when i did an interview with three brothers from the Free Church of Scotland, continuing uh, the North American uh, uh, Presbytery or the United States Presbytery, when they were making the point about the value and the beauty of uniformity, the value of a congregation using one translation, um, how that brings unity to a church. Um, there are there are some things that it's good to have uniformity in as a congregation. And with the explosion of modern translations, one of the things that's happened is it has undermined the unity and uniformity of the churches. Let's go on. This has been a long um, series. Let's look at the last two paragraphs. Robert Louis Dabney was neither the first nor the last to desire some common text or translation that would foster and preserve church unity. And such a desire is surely commendable. It's interesting because Dabney enjoyed a circumstance where he had just one translation that was widely used in the churches. I still remember the days. I'm old enough to remember when there was really only one translation. It was the authorized version. And certainly in Dabney's day, that was the case. But he saw, he saw the handwriting uh, on the wall. I mean, what did he say? He says, if this continues, we will have no New Testament at all. And he properly prophesied what we're dealing with today. Church officers, let's continue, therefore should be alert to whether their denomination or denominational agencies, such as Great Commission publications for the OPC and PCA, employ a given translation for their publications. In most circumstances, church unity would be fostered by conforming to such practices at the local level. This is interesting because he's saying we would have more unity if we would just use what the denomination, the denominational publishers use. But with all due respect, I, I, I think maybe he's saying that because he probably knows that they're saying you ought to use the, the ESV. And so now he's making one of the arguments that you should use the ESV is because this is the official denominational Bible. Um, but but what if would that would that be his opinion if the if they decided the official denominational Bible should be the New King James Version or should be the King James Version? Would you then abandon the ESV? I think you probably would not. And so in the end, I think the Bible you choose should not be simply a matter of the denomination's choice, but the denomination's choice should be guided by a proper bibliology. And again, it is a wonderful thing when there is uniformity in the church. Just last Sunday in our church, um, we didn't have any bulletins. Um, there was a there was a mix up, and we have a, a person who normally does the bulletins. And we actually they had been done, but they had been they had been left at home, so we didn't have any bulletins. And we always at the beginning of our services we read we have a quarterly memory verse, and so um, uh, it, it happened to be for this quarter it's Deuteronomy six verses four through seven. And so at the beginning of the service, it's normally printed in the bulletin, in the authorized version. And we all stand and we read it together. 
And I said, guys, we don't have the bulletins today, um, but we're still going to read the passage. And I said, I'm turning to it now in Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 7 in my Bible. And I said, if, if you have the authorized version, feel free to join me in reading aloud. If you have a different translation, then you can simply read it in your translation as we read it together. And we started reading Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 7, with no bulletin was printed there. And because in our church now, almost everyone uses the authorized version, it was so wonderful to hear the reading of that quarterly memory verse just as loudly and strongly as it normally has been read every Sunday when it's printed in our bulletin because most of our people are using the same translation because they know that's what I'm going to preach from. They know that's what our my fellow elder is going to preach from. They know that's what our pastoral assistant, a seminary student, is going to read from. Um, and they know that's the translation we use in our church. So that's the translation they have. That's the translation we give uh, to new Christians when they're baptized in our church. Um, so it's, it's, it's nice to have a common translation to use in the church. And then also he's saying, well, just interpret to the people. And I go back to um, uh, the, the, the why I preach from the received textbook and the article that is in there uh, called The View from the Pew, where the author talks about the problems when you're sitting, you're a layman sitting in the pew and the pastor introduces textual variants and it causes you to be confused. And so um, I actually think you're, if you're spending a lot of time talking about textual variants in the pulpit, you run the risk of undermining uh, the, the, the sheep's understanding of their of the stability reliability preservation of the scriptures let's let's look at the last paragraph we face an irony here as we often do in a world precariously poised between divine grace and divine judgment deference for the commonly known received manuscript of the 16th century the text of receptus on the ground that it was the common version of the churches an aspect of dabney's, dabney's argument has the effect of demonstrating a lack of deference for the commonly known and received manuscript tradition in the 21st century, the eclectic text. Respect for the entire church, both then and now, might motivate us to prefer the eclectic text, which always includes the Byzantine readings of the text of Receptus and the majority text. Um, so basically, that's an, that's an interesting argument. He's saying, if you're saying, if you're a Protestant, that we should use the received text because it was used by the reformers and by the Protestant Orthodox, then you should defer now to the, the modern critical text because that's the one that's that's received by most contemporary Christians. Um, it's it's now, the ESV now is the Textus Receptus, so why don't you use the Textus Receptus? Which is kind of funny. It's kind of, it's kind of a reverse um, of of what they accuse KJV onlyists of. Now you've got to be an ESV onlyist or a modern translation onlyist. I, I would just say in response to that, first of all, we're not part of the church merely of the 21st century. We're part of uh, the mystical body of Christ uh, that goes back to the time of the apostles. And so the question is, what is what are the scriptures? It's not what are the scriptures of 
the first century or the fifth century or the 10th century or the 15th century or the 16th century or the 21st century. It's what is the Bible? And so we should use the text that is the true text, the inspired text and preserved text of the Bible. The other thing I would say with all due respect is I think that many modern evangelicals and modern uh, confessional reform people are, are incorrect to think that they hold the majority position among Christians today. If you look at the statistics from the sales of Bibles, the King James Version, the New King James Version are, are still widely read. In fact, there, there was a study that was put out a couple years ago by Lifeway, uh, the publishing arm of the Southern Baptist Convention, and they said of, that of people who regularly read the Bible, that the most read Bible is still the King James Version, despite 150 years of, of attempting to undermine it and replace it with now a plethora of modern translations. I think that there is still, uh, uh, the, the majority would be people who still prefer the traditional text. It's just that in many cases, there's been an attempt to take that away from them in doing things like, well, our denomination says we're going to use the ESV. And now we've got a problem with, because there are these, there are these people who still like the RS, still like the, the King James Version and the New King James Version. So anyways, um, I don't buy this type of uh, reverse argument as to why I ought to use the ESV as the received text of the contemporary church. I don't think it's the received text of the contemporary church. And again, the main question is, what is the Bible? Uh, is the Bible uh, that uh, which we hold in our hands right now? And I think it's, that's another problem with accepting the modern critical text and modern translations, because if you hold to the modern critical text, you're saying, well, we have a text now. It's not really, we, we can't say it's really the Bible. And it's also subject to change if we make new manuscript discoveries, or if we come up with new uh, methods of doing textual criticism, or if we come up with new uh, computer algorithms that alter uh, our understanding of what the text might be. Well, friends, that was a long article. We we made our way through it. I don't know if there'll be a part two and a part three. If there is a part two and a part three, we'll go to the December 2023 um, uh, online issue of Ordained Servant, and we'll look at the case for the majority text, and then we'll look at T. David Gordon has another article, the case for the eclectic text. I'm not sure... Uh, what new information will be included in that. Um, but anyways, I appreciate your patience uh, in listening to this uh, this uh, rather lengthy, it seems like, uh, review of this article. I hope that some of what we have discussed has been helpful. Um, if there's one thing to take away from this, I sort of said this in the beginning, one thing that's encouraging to me about this, from my perspective, as, as one who is an advocate for the retrieval of the traditional Protestant text is we see that this is being talked about. Maybe it's being scorned, maybe it's being ridiculed, maybe it's being mocked, but it's at least showing up enough on the radar now that there are people who think that they need to respond to it. And so apparently it's showing up enough on the radar 
in the OPC that they need to respond to it. And I was I was actually having some conversations online with some friends today, and um, and I think I made the observation: Wow, there are, there are a lot of people really trying to push back the retrieval of the received text, the traditional text, the Reformation text. It's really, I think, created a little bit of anxiety um, in some circles. And um, so believe it or not, I see that as an encouraging thing. Well, uh, again, I hope that this episode has been helpful uh, for those who are listening. And God willing, I will look forward to speaking to you in the next episode of Word Magazine. Till then, take care and may the Lord richly bless you.